0: I've often been glad that we serve a God of second chances. That thought came to my mind when I saw the scriptures assigned for this week. That gospel reading may have sounded familiar to you because I preached on it about six weeks ago. I was preparing for the sermon and I went to the lectionary and I knew Advent was up at the top of the page. And I looked up towards the top and I saw a second Sunday and I said, that's it. And I looked at the scriptures and I said, perfect messages for Advent. Unfortunately, I didn't read the rest of the second Sunday part. It was the second Sunday of Epiphany, and so the gospel is back up again, and I have a second chance to talk about Jesus and Philip and Nathaniel. I thought the passage made for a good Advent sermon, but it's also a nice match for Epiphany, especially when it's matched up with the reading from Samuel because Epiphany is about the manifestation of Emmanuel. Those are two big words. Emmanuel, you may know, means God with us. Manifestation is one of those fancy words that means a disclosure, a, a revelation. And we have God being made manifest and being with both Samuel and Philip and Nathaniel. The difference is that Samuel hears a disembodied voice and Nathaniel hears an embodied voice. Samuel meets a disembodied word of God that comes to him in night. Nathanael meets the embodied word of God who comes to him in first century Israel. And in both cases, the response to an encounter with God is a call to ministry. I want to focus on Samuel, since I know you all remember my sermon from a few weeks ago. And then I'll draw some parallels and lessons from both of these readings. The story of Samuel may be familiar to you. Elkanah and Hannah go every year to the shrine at Shiloh. Every year they go to this shrine. Apparently, although we're not told this in Scripture... The uh, tabernacle found a permanent home there in Shiloh. According to the Talmud, a Jewish commentary on scripture, the tabernacle was in Shiloh for 369 years. That's a long time. For a long time, this tent sits there in a little valley in Israel, and everybody knows that's where you want to go if you want to be close to the presence of God. And after 369 years, apparently the tent, the tabernacle, had deteriorated a bit, and there's some kind of structure built around it Um, The doors are mentioned several times in this reading, for example. And in fact, in our reading, it's called a temple. It's not the temple built by David, but it's a temple, it's a dwelling place, it's a place that where everybody knows if you want to be close to the presence of God, you have to go to Shiloh. And so Elkanah and Hannah go once a year to Shiloh. They're faithful. We have faithful people going to the meeting place of God. But one of the first things we learn in the book of 1 Samuel is that the light's almost gone out among the hebrew people hannah has a problem she's infertile she can't conceive of a child she goes to the shrine and she prays she closes her eyes and as she's praying she moves her lips and what she's saying to god in her prayer and eli the priest is so shocked to see somebody in the actually at the shrine who has their eyes closed and moving their lips he thinks she must be drunk it doesn't dawn on him that she might be praying Meanwhile, at the shrine, Eli's sons are doing wicked things. They're taking bribes to give false prophecies. They're extorting sexual activity from women who visit the shrine. They're doing horrible, wicked things right there at the shrine. And even in this passage that we read, we hear this theme hit again. One of the first things we learn in the third chapter of 1 Samuel is that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision The word of the Lord was rare. And the next thing we read is that Eli's eyesight is growing dim. I think we're supposed to make a connection there. The writer is describing a world where the word of the Lord was rare. A spiritual desert where spiritual water is rare. Spiritual famine where spiritual food is rare. Spiritual wastelands where the word of God is rare. David is talking about that in the psalm. He's experienced that before, in a dry, barren place where there is no water, but the Lord comes to him. There are, of course, spiritual wastelands where the word of God is rare. Anglican Frontier Missions is devoted to going to people who have no access to the gospel. Our own parish supports Lauren and Linda Fox in Asia, and Brenton Kim McHugh overseeing outreaches to unreached people. There are places in the world we pray for the Kazakhs of Kazakhstan every Sunday. There are places in the world where there are spiritual wastelands where the word of God is rare. But I'm afraid there are spiritual wastelands even closer to home. I have a friend. Our lives have intertwined in interesting ways. We went to high school together and parted ways and then two years later met up in college. We were both philosophy majors. That was back in the old days when you could major in that and get a job. And um, then we spent the first two years of graduate school together, and then I came to the University of Florida, and he went on to Yale Divinity School. And um, he he got a fellowship where he had to pastor a church, and there was a little congregational church. He was a Baptist, but there was a little congregational church who could no longer afford a pastor, and so they they depended on whoever from from the the seminary came would come over. And uh, Matt was assigned to this church. And he was there for three or four weeks. And on at, at the back of the church after the service, this little lady came up to him and said, I'm so glad you came to our church. You remind me of the preachers who were here when I was a little girl. And Matt said, you've been here your whole life. And he, she says, yes, yes, I've, I've been going to this church my entire life. And you remind me of the preachers we had back when I was a little girl. And Matt thought well, I must have some kind of great classical oratory skills or something. And he says, what do I remind you of? And she said, you talk to us about Jesus. <laughs> and Matt said, what did the last guy talk about? And she said, he just talked about Buddha all the time. And then she said, and the fellow before him, I never could figure out what he was talking about. <laughs> I'm afraid there are spiritual wastelands where faithful people go like that little old lady who'd been going to that historic church a historic congregational church in Connecticut. She's going there. She wants to hear God's word but it's a spiritual wasteland. When she was a little girl, preachers talked about Jesus. Faithful people like Elkanah and Hannah who try to follow the Lord but the word of the Lord is rare. And I suspect there are Spiritual wastelands in Gainesville, entire neighborhoods with no Christian neighbors, churches where faithful people may go and yet not hear the word of the Lord. And I'm afraid I don't see much of a hunger for God's word. I've been reading lately about colonial Anglicanism, and just for my own reasons, and um, uh, re- re- reading about colonial Anglicanism in Virginia where parishes were set up by the colonial legislature, that these parishes were geographical areas, and they were huge. And uh, so the the idea came about of building chapels of ease, they were called. Chapels of ease. Doesn't that sound nice? I said that at 8 o'clock service, and I said, maybe we should call the chapel over there the Chapel of Ease. Doesn't that sound nice? Well, the the idea of the Chapel of Ease were little bitty church buildings who were built away from the parish house, the parish church, um, so so it would be easier for people to get to. In other words, they'd only have to ride a horse for 20 miles to get to church on Sunday instead of 80 miles to get to the main parish. And the idea was you would have uh, four, or rather three chapels of ease in the main parish church, and the priest would go Sunday by Sunday. And so um, they'd they'd have lay led uh, morning and evening prayer on on the other Sundays and so you'd have kind of a a circuit that the the priest would be would be traveling and so on Sunday morning those who wanted to go to church would get up very early in the morning load up the wagon come to church they would have morning prayer then they would have a communion service and then they would break out the picnic baskets for um for lunch they'd all eat, eat lunch together and then they'd have an early evening prayer although it'd be the middle of the afternoon by that time so they'd get back home At each of these morning prayer and evening prayer, there was a sermon, and the sermons typically lasted an hour to an hour and a half. It was an all-day affair of going and listening to God's word being proclaimed. In fact, and this is interesting, do you know why in the Constitution, the federal elections are on Tuesdays in November? Because they had to pick one date, and so they started at the top of the week, and they said, well, what about Sunday? And they said, well, that might ruffle too many feathers. Although there was a strong push for voting on Sunday because if you honored that day, it might be establishing a religion, but that's just a side talk. Anyway, but no, no, okay, that won't work. What about Monday? And some uh, of the delegates to the convention said Monday is fine, but some delegates to the convention said that won't work for my constituents because they're traveling all day to get to church on Sunday. They've got to make up that day's work on Monday, and they, they don't have time to go back into town to vote. And so they said, well, what about Tuesday? And everybody said, well, that, that'll work Tuesday. And so Tuesday was selected because Monday was too busy because too many people were spending all day going back and forth to church. There was a time when 90-minute sermons were normal. I don't think they'd be so popular today. (laughs) And I suggest that the only time you encounter the Word of God is for a few minutes on Sunday morning, you're living in a spiritual wasteland where the Word of God is rare. Well, the story of Samuel here is simple. Samuel Samuel is born. Hannah has made a promise to God that if she is given a son, she will get, present him to the Lord to serve at the shrine at Shiloh. And chapter one is an interesting, uh, or chapter two is an interesting chapter because it's back and forth between Eli's son and Samuel. Hosni and Phineas, Eli's sons, they're doing horrible, wicked things. That's described, and then we're told, but Samuel was ministering before the Lord. And then we're back to Hosni and Phinehas doing horrible, wicked things, and then we're told, but Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. And then we're told Hosni and Phinehas do horrible things, and then we're told, but Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And then the time comes. Four times God calls to Samuel, and the first three times Samuel goes to Eli. But then Eli perceives that it's God who's calling Samuel. Samuel goes back. He receives this message of judgment on Eli. We'll get back to Samuel later, but I think that Eli deserves some attention here. Eli is an interesting character because he's a good man, but he's a weak man. He's a good, weak man. Notice a few things about Eli just in this reading. Notice he has a lack of envy towards Samuel. Samuel. You would think if anybody had a right to hear a word from the Lord, it would be the priest, right? If anyone had a right to be spoken to, it was God. Eli doesn't say, Samuel, go back and lay down. And when you hear God calling you, say, go talk to Eli. He's not envious at all. And then notice the humility when he accepts the message of judgment. He says, God is God. God must do what is right. How many other biblical characters do not accept God's message so gracefully, with humility, hearing this message of judgment from this little boy? There's much to admire in Eli, even even in the next chapter, chapter 4. He's a good man, but he's weak. He can't lead his people. He can't stop his sons from abusing the people. Now, his sons are adults, and you might say, well, he can't be held responsible for his adult children. But no, but they're working for Eli. They're working at the shrine. He can at least fire them. He has control over that, but he's too weak to step up. And what is sadly amazing is that Samuel grows up to follow the exact same pattern. Samuel's a good man, but his sons do wicked things. In chapter 13, When Samuel says goodbye to the people, it's time for Samuel to die. Samuel stands before the people, and he says, I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am, he tells the people, testify against me before the Lord. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? From whom or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. And the people answer back, you've not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. Samuel is a good man, but it is his own son's actions which are the impetus to the call for a king. In chapter 8, we're told that when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. The move for the king comes from Saul's corrupt sons. And wouldn't it be nice if the historian had just left that part out? But God doesn't usually call perfect people. God calls people who are like the people Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. Paul calls people who've done these wicked things. But notice what Paul says. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. You've been redeemed. Jesus calls imperfect people. In fact, sometimes God calls people who are good people, but weak. Jesus says of Nathanael in the gospel reading, you're a man in whom there's no deceit. You remember that? But uh, Nathanael isn't perfect. Philip isn't perfect either. God calls imperfect people. I mean, he doesn't really have much of a choice, does he? In looking at both Samuel and the story of Philip and Nathanael, I'd like to draw some lessons for us. First, in God's call, God is the initiator. Notice how in each of these accounts, both the Samuel account and the gospel account of Philip and Nathaniel, it's God who makes the first move. In fact, Jesus once reminds his, reminded his disciples, this is also in the gospel of John, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Notice what Samuel is doing when he receives God's call. He's just lying in bed. He's not praying for God to send him a word or else he would have responded in a different way. He's not fasting, desiring a call on his life. He's not praying or studying. He's just laying there and he hears the voice, Samuel, Samuel, and God is calling him. We're explicitly told in John's gospel that Jesus goes to Philip and says, come follow me. Philip doesn't say, can I follow you? Jesus says, you come and follow me. That's one of the gospel's foundational truth, that contact with God always begins with God's activity. God makes the first move. We're ensla- enslaved with our sinful natures. We're spiritually blind and dead, enemies of God. We're like really the people who Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians. But God calls us, washes us, redeems us. The second insight from both of these accounts is that God already knows those that he's going to call he even knows them by name. He's already thoroughly familiar with the lives and personalities of those that he calls. He knows Samuel is growing in favor. In fact, we're told in, the, in chapter 2 that he's growing in favor with God and man. God has noticed Samuel. You remember that Jesus tells Nathaniel, I knew you before Philip even went to talk to you. I saw you. And you remember that Nathaniel was duly impressed. God calls those who are precious to him. The prophet Isaiah speaks God's words and says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Oftentimes, we're told that God knew us and called us while we we were still in the womb. God says, Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I appointed you. David confessed in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame was not my body, was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret in his mother's womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. God finds precious and cherishes the people that he calls. He knows them even before they're born. The third insight is that God is persistent in his call. And we see that, I think, especially with Samuel. God doesn't call Samuel once and then give up. God doesn't call Samuel once and say, well, he's not paying attention. God doesn't call Samuel once and say, well, he's not recognizing my voice. But instead, over and over, the call keeps coming. Some of you know my own story, my very long story of call to pastoral ministry. Believe it or not, I began the discernment process for the priesthood in 1996. I called the church office, and I made an appointment to speak with Father Lou Mattia over at St. Michael's. And I was going to go in and tell him. I didn't tell anybody what the meeting was about. I was going to say, I feel that I'm called to the priesthood. And I showed up at the, at the, at the church office. I walked through the door, and a woman named Tony was volunteering to be the receptionist there. If you know who Tony was who went to St. Michael's, then you know who I'm talking about. And if you're not, don't. It's not a big deal. But she was sitting there, and I, I walked in. And I said, hi, Tony. I've got an appointment with Father Lou. And she said, I hope you're going to tell him that you're called to the priesthood. And I just kind of stared at her. And she said, you are? And I said, yes, I am. And she said, I've been praying that you would, that you would hear God's call because it's so obvious. Well, if you know my long story, it wasn't obvious to everybody. It was a very long 20-year process. I went up to Lake Weed to meet with distinguished Episcopalians from across the diocese, um, none of whom were convinced that I had a call to the priesthood at that point, many of whom were convinced I had absolutely no call to the priesthood at all. One member of that committee who was overwhelmingly convinced that I had absolutely no call to the priesthood was, would you believe it, Corbin Carnell. He was on that committee, and I did not impress him very much. I am sure he forgot about it by the time we re-con- re-met here. He certainly never mentioned it, and I never wanted to bring it up. And I, I'm sure he just simply forgot. Why would he forget a kid from 16 years ago? But the Sunday after my ordination, he shook my hand, and he said, You've always been a priest in my eyes. And, of course, I thanked him, and I gave him a hug. And I thought, You know, you didn't think that 20 years ago. <laughs> but that was, that was a, a special occasion for me for him to say that. And I remember sitting in the room over in uh, the office building over at St. Michael's when a priest from the diocese came in to tell me I'd been rejected. He was Bishop Jekyll's hatchet man. That was Father Ted Griswold. (laughs) I've had some interesting interactions with those who were part of that discernment process a long time ago. But the call is persistent. Even if others don't recognize it, if the call keeps returning, you have to keep moving forward and stepping forward. I mean, what other option do you have except to reject God's call? Another insight here also comes from that story, um, also can be seen in that story, that God's call depends on others to recognize it. God doesn't call Samuel, and Samuel just starts walking around telling people what, what to do. It's Eli who perceives, yes, you're being called by God you need to respond, you need to listen, you need to hear. And then fifth and finally, God seeks close, personal, direct relationships with the people that he calls. From now on, Samuel has a direct connection to God. From now on, he has a direct connection, a relationship with God. He no longer is in a place where the word of the Lord is rare, but now he's in a place where the word of the Lord comes to him but even closer than that, God presents himself to Philip and Nathaniel. Jesus walks alongside Philip and Nathaniel for three years. When God says, Come follow me, he wants a close personal connection. And so I ask you, what are you being called to? There are different kinds of calling, there's a general call that all believers are called to. For example, all believers are called to love their neighbors. You don't have to ask, am I called to love my neighbor? You already know. Yes, you're called to love your neighbor. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you're called to love your neighbor. There's that kind of general call. All right. There's also what we might call a providential call, where you live a life and you have experiences and you develop gifts and talents, and then you find a place where those gifts and talents that God has given you through your just living your life can be applied in an area of ministry. And then there's oftentimes a special call, where it's clear that you're called to do a particular thing. And then that call is confirmed through interaction with others. I've got a list here. Jamie, do we have the slides for the... Some opportunities, especially keeping in mind as we make our transition over to our new place, Canaan land <laughs> milk and honey, think about these things, some opportunities here. We have some kind of standing needs all, all, all the time, okay One is for musicians, uh, both vocalists and in- instrumentalists. Um, if you have talents in that in that in those fields, please let David know. Um, David Lacanina over here, just let him know. Even if you don't think it would fit in with the music team, we had uh, Susan and her friend came and did dulcimers for the fourth Sunday of Advent. And so if you have a a, a talent that you can use, let us know, because there may be a place where we can use you, even if you're not, uh, uh, if you have an instrument that you don't think would fit in or, or what have you. Another need that we have. Is somebody to uh, video our, to run the video equipment on Sunday morning? You'd be surprised at how many people check in on Facebook. They go to Facebook and they watch the service live. Um, some people just Google uh, Anglican or do whatever on Facebook. They don't Google on Facebook. They search on Facebook, right? I can't, it's all one thing. It's all. Anyway, um, you know, just just look Anglican, li- Anglican live, and and we come up, and we've had um, uh, uh, at least one woman in North Carolina who emailed a prayer request, and she says she can't go to her church, so she watches from North Carolina here, and she said, "Would you pray for me because I'm having this physical issue? That's why I can't go to church." And 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 so. Um, we need we need assistance in that to loosen up Nikki for what sh- other stuff she's called to do okay N- next we have i didn't know what else to call it backup slide controller our whole audiovisual team lacks depth. I don't mean intellectually. I mean it's a narrow bench, okay? And um, so, when one person can't come in, it's a, it's a struggle. So, it'd be great if we had some people trained to do sound and slide and videography, so that we could we could inter we could we could shift people around when we need to. Here we have a big one. Transportation team. Have you missed Miss Jerry lately? She wants to come to church. She can't come to church. She doesn't drive. If you're thinking, I'd go get her, but I don't have enough room in my car to to bring the kids along, guess what? We've got access to a van. We've got a van. All we need is a driver. Maybe two or three people to work together on a team. I'm hoping... I'll just be honest, I'm hoping for young men to just kind of mentor the little boys that she brings to church to make some connections with them. If you see somebody and they haven't been here in a while, well, maybe there's a reason. We've got a family who wants to come to church, desperately wants to come to church. Miss Jerry doesn't drive. Somebody's being called to come to church early, pick up the van, go over, get her, bring her here, take her home. Next. This is kind of exciting. What we're, for the moment, we're calling Pure Ministries. That's the national group that we're working with. This is a ministry to especially children, but adults, everybody with special needs. We're going to be putting together a team. We're going to be using a, build, a room over in the new building that is sensory sensory safe, okay, for, especially for autistic children to be able to go in and have a safe space where they can interact and, and, and be in a welcoming environment. Um, I'm not sure if you can read, no, you can't read what that says. Each of those letters stands for something. We, we may change the name, but that's just the national group we're talking about. But um, uh, Kathy Ayers and Kim Harris are, are talking and working and thinking through how to um, how to be an outreach not just take care of, of special needs kids who come here, but to be an outreach to parents in the community to say, if you want to come to church, we have a safe place here for your children. Next is an adult education program, catechism class. We've got something in the, in the works for um, um, maybe doing some online work, but we're going to have time before our services when we get over there where we're, we'll have like 20 minutes to take a question from the catechism work through it, and then come into church and just do that every week to come to church early, study a question from the catechism, come in, sit through the prelude, listen to the music, prepare for worship, and, and uh, do that. So we, we need people to just be there. There's, the idea would be no preparation. The idea would be just to sit and talk about the question that comes up that week. So that's another opportunity for ministry. Next up, we can always use children and youth volunteers. We need children ministers to volunteer on Sunday mornings, on Wednesday evenings, for our special events that we have planned. Occasionally our young people go on trips, and we need people to be responsible adults to go along and make sure that everything gets taken care of. Um, There's an opportunity to provide meals for the youth group on Wednesday night. An email went out just last week about that. You You don't have to bring the food if you don't want to. You can pay for it as a way of feeding kids who come in from school and they haven't had anything to eat. You can't learn about the Bible when you're hungry. So you get them from school, bring them here, they eat and then they can learn about Jesus. Next up, Cairo's prison ministry. There's a generational shift in which young, younger ministers aren't moving into the Cairo prison ministries, at least in the women's side we're seeing that. There are two prisons within 30 minutes of here. They're right next to each other, Marion Correctional Institute for Men and Lowell Correctional Institution for Women. Lowell Correctional Institution is the largest women's prison in Florida, I mean, not in America. It is in Florida, too, but in in America, the largest women's prison in America, you have two large prisons right between Gainesville and Ocala. When people are released from Marion or Lowell Correctional Institutes and they don't have families to go to, where do you think they're going to go? Gainesville or Ocala? You would think people in Gainesville or Ocala would want them to hear the gospel before they came back from prison. Just as a practical measure. Just as a practical measure. Now... There is a Kairos clo- closing, which is like a Cursillo closing or Anglin Fourth Day closing on Sunday, May 20th. If you uh, talk to Fred Cantrell, get information from him, he's going to put it through because it's at the men's prison um, to, to, to go to the closing. We haven't had A4D for a while. Cursillo is is not around locally. And so if you miss those kind of closing activities, There's one going on down there at Kairos, and if you go there, you'll go inside the prison. You'll actually be in the same room with prisoners, and when you survive that experience, you might say, I can do this for a weekend. Why not? Next up, a women's ministry coordinator to find out what the needs are, for women's Bible studies, retreats, we've got two women working on a, a women's retreat right now, but it would be nice to have somebody overseeing and checking dates so that we don't have uh, things scheduled one day and then the next day so that they're, they fit, fall in the calendar better. And not only do we need that for women's ministry, but we also need that for men's ministry. The next slide. which just says men's ministry coordinator says the same thing. The ne- next need is a neighborhood outreach coordinator. Someone who can make contacts in the neighborhood and let the neighborhood know what's going on here. Like our Christmas Children's Theater program, it's a nice low. What Father asked called a low cringe event, something like that? Low cringe event to invite people to church. When we have um, special events, we have things going on, vacation Bible school. If we already have somebody who has things out in the community caroling at Christmas time, wouldn't that be cool? To, to go out into the neighborhood and, and have an impact actually in the, in the neighborhood. This would be linked to the, to the outreach to Littlewood Elementary School and, 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 and see what we can do to be a, a presence in the community. And then we need, the next s- slide is a community group coordinator to coordinate the activity of the community groups. Um, we, we, we don't really have anybody right now overseeing that and finding out what's going on. And what well, we do, it's Nikki, and she's got to be freed up to do other stuff, okay? And so somebody who can coordinate what they do. And then finally, the last one, a um, college something, <laughs> we, 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 tr- we tried just about everything. Um, some kind of outreach What if I have it? There some kind of ministry to college students who come here? Some kind of outreach to the the college? Um, Maybe linked to the parachurch organizations like Young Life and uh, Crew and all those groups that are on campus already. You know, how can we minister to them? International students? um, There's a whole mission field right down the street. um, And how to? we've, We've tried a lot of these things in the past. And how do we? How do we? How do we move forward on it? Something like that. So the question that I ask you is you've been made aware of these needs and now the question is what, what, what are you called to do? What's going on around here that you say I can step up and, and fill in one of these fill in one of these gaps And that's what I want to leave you with. what are you being called to do in Jesus name Amen.